Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I immigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Zimbler Miller. I'm the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, Thin Edge of the Wedge, which has also now been professionally translated into German. I grew up in a small Midwestern town where our parents and grandparents came at the turn of the last century, fleeing the czar. But 25 years after the end of World War II, my US Army officer husband and I found ourselves stationed in Munich, Germany. It was a cultural shock that changed our lives forever. Evelyn? Our guest today is Emily Schreider. Emily is based in Israel and an expert in digital activism and a columnist for the Jerusalem Post. She has written for numerous other publications and she specializes in fighting anti-Semitism, misogyny and oppressive regimes. Emily, welcome to our show. It's uh, it's wonderful to have you on. Um, Thanks so much I, for having me. I have a, a first question, uh, our first question for you. Um, could you please briefly explain to our listeners what digital activism entails, what it is, um, and what motivated you to engage in it? Sure. So uh, as you know, social media has become, whether you know for better or for worse, a huge part of our daily lives. And as a result, we also see it as a huge platform for different forms of hate speech. Um, and one of the most active forms of hate speech on social media today is anti-Semitism. I think that while the internet, of course, opened up many opportunities for people to connect and to learn and to break out of oppressive societies, it also allowed people an outlet to spew all kinds of hate that might have been festering in their hearts for many years or even decades in some case, some cases. Um, and unfortunately, we see the result of that on social media because it allows people to do things without having the consequences face to face. You have a degree of anonymity that you don't have in person. So many of the forms of hatred, especially anti-Semitism, that aren't really acceptable anymore, even in societies that have problems with anti-Semitism to varying degrees, um, things that wouldn't be accepted in face-to-face, -face, you know, in day-to-day -day life are suddenly okay on social media. So as we've seen the rise of social media, we've also seen a rise in anti-Semitism. And because the social media platforms have failed so miserably in dealing with anti-Semitism and modern anti-Semitism, which we'll probably get into the the definitions between modern and classical anti-Semitism later, um, we've also seen a rise in anti-Semitism in person because they've, you know, continued to fail to deal with that. So my activism really comes from witnessing this. I worked in, in political campaigns and in university, I was a political science major. I also did my master's in political communication. So I've been very involved in writing, writing in the digital space, whether on social media or, you know, in, in actual publications. Um, and I started to see these trends, not just against um, 
Jews and, and Israel, uh, or Jews in the name of Israel sometimes, but also against other groups as well, in particular women and, and anti-LGBT comments. Those are the three groups that I've really seen a lot of hate speech, like disproportionate hate speech on social media. Um, and, you know, it's not completely logical. Of course, there's, there's racism and different forms of hate across social media, but but disproportionately it's against those three groups. And I would say that for Jews, it's actually the worst. Um, and as I've seen that over time for about 10 years now, um, I started writing about it. I started creating content, whether it be uh, articles that I write, whether it be video content that I create, um, whether it be uh, graphics that I create or simply responding to, to anti-Semitism and its various forms from the individuals themselves on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, um, I started pushing back and pushing back publicly. And there have been a lot of, um, a lot of pros, I think, from that and also a lot of cons, you know, not everyone likes people who, who push back about that kind of thing. And sometimes it also puts a target on your back. But I think that as someone who's an activist and who cares about pushing back against all forms of hate, but, you know, anti-Semitism, especially I'm Israeli, I'm an Israeli American. Um, I feel like it's, part of my being it's part of who I am and and you know I'm, I'm a person who's not afraid to to stand up to that hate and face the consequences whatever they may be and, and in a way I'm privileged because I I'm you know independent I have my own company and I don't have to face some of the threats that other people do face or other people face in other countries um, but I think that because of that I, I have an obligation to push back against the anti-semitism that we see thank you in your opinion, where does this anti-Semitism, including anti-Semitic comments about Israel, come from online primarily? Which groups or, or areas of the public? Oh, wow. <laughs> so first of all, I will say unequivocally that it comes from every direction. <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems that there's somebody in every group who hates Jews um, never with, you know, an actual logical reason, of course, but, but it really does come. I, I mean, I have seen everything very creative, uh, twisted, you know, convoluted paths to somehow the Jews being involved. So in, in the last few years, we've seen a huge rise from the far right in the Western world um, with, uh, and I don't even want to say like, I guess, alt-right, um, from neo-Nazis across different social media platforms like Parler. I know Twitter sort of went against them. And so then they moved to, to, uh, to Parler more and, and other platforms like 4chan. They're still very, very active. They're still very active in, in WhatsApp and Telegram in these groups. Um, and I think that we also see a huge push. And, and that being said, there's a lot of talk in the mainstream media about the far right and anti-Semitism on the far right. And I do think that's justified. However, we also see a lot of anti-Semitism from the far left in the West. Uh, I'll get to the rest of the world in a, in a minute. We also see a lot of anti-Semitism from the far left in the name of criticism of Israel. Of course, there's legitimate criticism of Israel. But when you are targeting Jews or Jews in the diaspora, over policies that Israel or the Israeli army implements, that's anti-Semitism. Holding Jews accountable in other places for a country they don't live in and have never been a citizen of is complete anti-Semitism. So I think there's a lack of understanding and a, a lack of acceptance even socially of what anti-Semitism actually looks like today. And we see instead of, you know, when, when this anti-Semitism is called out, 
instead of acknowledging it and using it as an opportunity to learn and to understand, well, why does the Jewish community, the consensus Jewish community view this as anti-Semitism, we see them double down and we see them make excuses for the comments that they make. Um, you know, there are a few members of Congress who have made comments that are, are very closely related, I'll put it generously, to anti-Semitic tropes, you know, about Jews and money, um, Jews controlling the government, things like this. We know these are anti-Semitic tropes. They have been for decades, uh, if not, not decades, centuries. And, um, and when this is called out and exposed for, for being anti-Semitism, we see them double down instead of saying, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, <laughs> which I would respect a lot more. Use it as an opportunity to learn. And I will give you a better example. Nick Cannon, who is a, a celebrity, he said something very anti-Semitic I think it was already two years ago, a while ago. And since then, he has really, really taken the initiative to build bridges with the Jewish community, to learn, to publicly apologize, and to learn why what he said was anti-Semitic, why it was so problematic. And to this day, he continues to engage with Jewish community across the United States and use it as an opportunity to educate other people about what he did and, and why it was anti-Semitic and why it was problematic. So there is a better way to respond. I understand that not everyone sees the connections the same way, you know, within the Jewish community we do, but that's not an excuse for anti-Semitism either. Um, that's in regards to the Western world. In regards to the Arab world, okay, so that's a whole other issue. And I think that um, historically there's always been an issue of anti-Semitism in the Arab world as well, much like, you know, we saw in Europe hundreds of years ago, there was also discrimination against both Christian and Jewish groups, uh, all minority groups really, in the Arab world. That continues until today, and we saw a huge surge of that following um, Israel's Declaration of Independence in 1948. We saw almost a million Jews being expelled and or forced out of their countries without any compensation for their land, for their businesses, for uh, their lives in some cases. Many of them were tortured. Many of them were murdered. There were a lot of pogroms. Um, and in fact, a lot of the Jewish community outside of the Arab world isn't even aware of, of the extent of how terrible this really was and the level of persecution of um, you know, the Jews of Arab countries. Uh, unfortunately, social media, we see the same thing uh, from the Arab world, except a bit more extreme. Um, I would say that a lot of it is done in the name of Israel, but oftentimes the word that they, words that they use even in Arabic is, you know, Yehud, um, which is Jew in English. They don't really differentiate or attempt to differentiate the same way that we see in the West. I'm not saying that, you know, when they say, oh, I, I don't like Zionist, I, I would still say that, you know, this is anti-Semitism, but in the Arab world, you, you see less of that. There's a big problem with Holocaust denial or Holocaust minimization in the Arab world, although it is starting to change um, thanks to the Abraham Accords. Um, and this is across all social media. We see it on TikTok. We see it on YouTube. We see it on websites, of course, uh, Twitter, or anywhere you see a lot of Arabic content, you see a lot of anti-Semitism. Um, some of it in the name of criticism, criticism of Israel and some of it not. It's a huge, huge, huge problem. Um, and it's been used to excuse and to promote violence against Jews, in particular in the state of Israel. There was a huge wave of uh, terrorist attacks in 2015 to 17, I would say, uh, for a while. Um, and this was dubbed the stabbing intifada because that was the hashtag on social media. Um, and you saw a lot of people, even very young people, taking to social media uh, to learn 
how to attack Jews, like I said, Jews, not Israelis, Jews. Um, and then after the fact, we saw attacks, uh, after the uh, attacks that we saw, we saw praising of this violence. Uh, one of the most popular graphics on social media during this time in Arabic was a graphic depicting how to stab a Jew in Arabic. Um, this had millions and millions of views. Eventually, it was removed by social media platforms. But again, that's been an ongoing battle as well, getting the social media platforms to remove actual incitement to violence against Jews. I'm sure other groups too, but obviously my focus is the, is the Jewish community. So that's my, my area of research. So it's a big, it's a big challenge and it's a constantly changing challenge because the digital sphere is always growing and changing. Um, but there are people like me who are fighting back. Uh, so we're doing, we're doing what we can. So in, in short, to some of my answer, I wouldn't say that it comes from any one group. We have a problem from the right. We have a problem from the left in the Western world. Um, and we have a problem in the Arab world as well. And I would say that those are the three main areas where we see anti-Semitism coming from online today. And wherever it comes from online, it reaches uh, international audiences, right? Because yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, um, um, Emily, what digital activism tactics do you use to respond to these attacks? So I think one of the most important things that people can do, and it, I myself am, you know, very forward facing. I'm not afraid to like put my face out there. Not everyone, not everyone else is, but that doesn't mean that you can't make a difference on social media. Obviously you can do things um, like reporting posts or reporting anti-Semitic content. But one of the things that I have found to be very effective in dealing with social media platforms themselves, not the anti-Semites, but the distribution of the anti-Semitism, um, is I will report the post. And if the post is not removed by Facebook, which has happened many, many times, um, I will screenshot the original content um, and share it on a different platform, tagging uh, Facebook. So if Twitter refuses to remove it, then I will screenshot it and share it on Instagram. And if Facebook re refuses to remove it, then I will screenshot it and put it on Twitter and tag the other accounts. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've done this and that magically in a few hours, that content was removed. Funny how that works. Um, so these brands do. Could you explain it for people who are not quite so digitally savvy how this works? In other words, Facebook is being embarrassed on Twitter. So when you've reported, to, am I right? Facebook. Uh, yes. And there is a, you might tell people where the report button is. And Facebook itself doesn't take it seriously. But then when it's called out on another social media platform, you're saying suddenly Facebook cares in our example. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So not all the time, um, but but quite often, if you are able to screenshot on your computer what the original post is, and then in the settings, and, and it's different on different computers, so I can't describe exactly where the report button is, but there should be like a drop down menu where you can see the report. And then you can report that content for hate speech or targeted hate speech. Um, there's different categories you can qualify under. And then after a day or two, usually, Facebook will get back to you via email or also in your support center, but email is usually the way I get the messages saying that they removed it or that they didn't remove it. If they didn't remove it, I have screenshotted the email itself next to the screenshot of the uh, anti-Semitic content and then shared it on another social media platform. And oftentimes what will happen is that later they'll remove this 
the original anti-Semitic content. Um, I think that this is effective because number one, it's forcing public accountability. And number two, even if it is removed, other people are then aware of the extent of the problem. Um, and this is something that we struggled a lot with, you know, myself and different activists in 20, 2015, 16, and 17 with that wave of terrorist attacks is that Facebook just wasn't removing the content. And if you, if you created the same thing um, against Palestinians, they would remove it right away. But if you created it against Israelis or against Jews, they would leave it up. Sometimes it would be removed, sometimes it wasn't. So there was actually a class action lawsuit uh, by Shuata Dean, and uh, they they created two pages that were exactly the same, except they used Jews or uh, Zionists in the place of Palestinians, not Arabs, Palestinians. The Palestinian page was removed immediately. The Israeli page wasn't. I myself reported something. I remember it was called uh, Death to Zionist Baby Killers. <laughs> Again, allusions to uh, anti-Semitic uh, tropes. Um, that Jews are killing babies. And um, this was not removed by Twitter because it didn't violate their policies. Later it was. But what I did was I posted about it on Twitter. Um, and that was how we ended up getting that content removed. Um, and then today, even, you know, the the different social media platforms have different levels of uh, sensitivity to these issues. And I think that they are woefully insufficient. Um, but that doesn't mean that we stop reporting and that we stop publicizing when they uh, when they fail. Um, and I, th I would say that Twitter, even though all of them now it took it took a while, but all of them have banned Holocaust denial explicitly. That wasn't the case until a few years ago. And I led a, a campaign pressuring the social media platforms. That being said, there are some platforms who are better than others at removing that that type of content. Um, YouTube has been pretty good, even in Arabic, about removing Holocaust denial. Facebook has improved a lot, a lot, just in the last two years. Twitter is awful, absolutely awful. I don't know what their excuse is for what's happening because it is technically against their terms of service, but they're just severely lacking. I mean, just two days ago, I got like, 40, I don't know if they were bots or just anti-Semites or both, um, like 40 responses to one of my tweets of pictures of Hitler. These aren't like, you know, intellectual arguments. These are just pure hatred, pure anti-Semitism. Um, and of course, I reported them and some of the accounts were suspended and some of them I haven't gotten a response yet. Um, but it's a it's an ongoing challenge. So I would say that exposing it is the is the most important thing that we can do. Emily, is the by taking a screenshot on Facebook um, of the anti-Semitic remark and putting the the uh, rejection to remove it, uh, taking a screenshot of that as well, putting both on Instagram, for instance. What what is the uh, what is the effect of that on Facebook? How why does it bother them? Is is it that the the public starts to react to Facebook and starts yes. to complain? Or okay. yes. Um, so in my case, and this is also something that, you know, other activists should do publicly or privately, I also speak, to, you know, I have a lot of WhatsApp groups with other activists, with other organizations. Um, so I will also share it with them and encourage more people to speak about this particular piece of content. This is really key uh, to pushing back. Even if you're alone, it's still worth doing. Um, but the more people you have, the more effective you're going to be. And also in my case, over time, because I've done this for a while and, and you know, it's one of my 
one of my things. I have a lot of followers who even journalists who will follow me for this kind of stuff. Um, so when there are incidents like that of anti-Semitism, they pick up on it from something that I share. So Great. that's another reason, you know, the more you do, the more effective you are, um, the more you grow and the more response you get from social media networks. Yep. So it takes time. Don't be discouraged, but do as much as you can. Great. My question is, um, you've actually really answered a great deal about strategies for our listeners, what to do. But I have a personal thing that I always hesitate. To me, sharing something anti-Semitic, and I'm active on Twitter, much more so than Facebook, from taking is then because people are such um, read so quickly on Twitter that they can actually just get the, the anti-Semitic message rather than realizing that what I'm trying to say is this is wrong. And that's always my hesitation about repeating anything that's anti-Semitic in terms of a screenshot and not in calling out someone and saying this article is anti-Semitic, but in literally showing what, what the, the anti-Semitism is, I'm always concerned that it will really just make people believe it more. Well, I think that the the description itself is key in situations like this. And on Twitter, it's both a blessing and a curse um, because people do have time to read like the headline, which is the whole tweet on Twitter, pretty much. Um, so that's good. Uh, people are more inclined to read the actual text itself as opposed to an article. Um, but there are also other methods that you can do without being a designer. Um, if, for example, in the Instagram story, you can put the put the image that you took or the screenshot that you took and, you know, write an X through it, or you can add a comment on it in the platform itself um, and then save it to your phone, for example, and upload. You don't need to be a graphic designer to sort of annotate images that you're using. So if you're really concerned that the graphic itself is promoting anti-Semitism, um, which has happened to me also, you can do something very small like that just to, you know, denote that, the graphic itself is a, is a problem. Um, that way you're not, uh, not sharing it. I like that idea of the X across. Yeah. So, so that, so that's always an issue. Uh, I think it's very interesting, for example, in Beverly Hills, a couple of weeks ago, we've been having a problem with anti-Semitic flyers and the local newspapers have then not repeated what the words are, but only given the general context which I think is good because there'll be people reading the newspaper will say, say, oh, those flyers were correct. So it's always this balancing act, I think, not to encourage people to use negative things as if they were correct. Evelyn, do you want to talk about the pitfalls? It's, uh, you're not asking your question. I did, she, she oh. did such a great answer. Okay. Um, all right. Are there pitfalls, Emily, um, our viewers must be aware of in uh, undertaking digital activism? Uh, yes. <laughs> in short, yes, of course, there are pitfalls. Um, I think that anytime you're operating in an online space, you need to be careful um, of protecting your identity, um, especially if you have you know, something to lose, if you work in an environment that people don't think like you, if um, you know, it's possible for people to, hurt, you know, find out who you are and harass your family. I mean, I wouldn't say most of the time that people are physically in danger from the activities that they engage in online, but you should be smart about it. You should be careful. And if you are in a position where you deal with people who have 
strong opinions against Israel, for example, um, it's better maybe to have an anonymous account that isn't forward facing like someone like me. Um, there are also steps you can take if you are comfortable being on camera or, or talking under your own name, writing under your own name. Um, I would say first and foremost, you should put two-step verification on all of your accounts, all of them, um, because there are a lot of people who will go after people who fight against anti-Semitism um, and try to hack their accounts and try to try to get into their social media accounts. And you will, um, you will get pushed back. Just know that uh, most of the time it means nothing. <laughs> You're not actually being threatened. Um, but brace yourself for that. Um, there will be, there will be pushback and there will be people who say very, very nasty, inappropriate things. Unfortunately, it's worse if you're a woman, a hundred percent. Um, there's a lot of nasty people on the internet. Uh, I've often called Twitter the toilet bowl of humanity <laughs> and all of social media, but Twitter in particular. Um, so you got to have somewhat of a thick skin, um, and let that stuff roll off your back and know that, for every person that has something nasty to say, you never know who else is viewing it, that it's making them think twice um, about how they talk, um, how they perceive different things that other people say. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of people who have followed me that initially didn't agree with certain things or they didn't see why certain types of comments um, about Israel or how how people talk about Israel is anti-Semitic and when it is and when it isn't. And then over the years, they've said, oh, like, you know what, now I really understand that things are different. So you really can have an impact um, if you stick to stick to your your principles um, and be consistent. And uh, and also, oh, something else important about engaging in digital activism. Don't say racist things. I mean, it's sad that I even need to say this now, but um, the Internet is forever, like forever. So if you say something stupid or racist or sexist or anti-gay or, or any of these things, um, somebody will find it at some point <laughs> and they can use it to attack you. So if you, first of all, don't be a racist um, against anyone, but if you are, keep it to yourself because uh, <laughs> nobody else needs more, more, of that, uh, more of that hate against any group. So um, be careful of what you say. Um, and try to uh, choose your words wisely for the same reasons. Um, and yeah, I, I would say that's my that's my advice for for engaging in digital activism. So what what, what was the verification procedure you said? Could you say uh, it's not it's not verification like the blue checks, but putting on two step verification. So that means that when you log into your account, you will also receive, uh, usually it's a text message to your phone to confirm that it is you. Like they'll text you a code and then you enter the code and you can log into your account. This is really, really important um, because it's much easier to hack passwords today than it was previously. Um, but if you have two steps and if you're physically in possession of your phone, obviously, um, then it becomes much easier. This should be the standard across all platforms. Usually it's this way with banking automatically. They insist that you do. But um, but also for your, for your email, especially um, for any social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, even they all have this feature. You just need to enable it manually. So that's my that's so like my most basic and most important advice. So that people cannot. Uh, hack your account or, or right. Okay. Thank you. I think we should mention that people should have strong passwords. Of course. Of, of course. course. Yeah. And also to put passwords, we just had an experience when my husband left his fire on a plane and he got it back, but we suddenly realized it had access to his email and he always just, thought, he only just reads on it. 
but he needed to have a password on it. So there are things that you don't think, oh, I, it's just, I just read on my fire. No, nope, put a password on it. Yes. So we all need to be very aware of that. This is not your area, but you might have some tips. Are there any strategies in dealing with anti-Semitism before it goes online? Um, I think that building connections with groups outside the Jewish community is really, really critical. Right now, we're at a time where we're dealing with Jews sort of being forced out of the discussion when it comes to minority groups, especially in the West in the name of, I guess, like being woke or something, really it's coming from a place of ignorance about uh, Jewish history and about the Jewish people as a whole. As I mentioned, like even a lot of Jewish communities aren't so familiar in the West, aren't so familiar with the historical persecution of Jews from Arab countries. Um, so how can we be educating outside the Jewish community about that as well? Um, so obviously understanding Jewish history um, as a whole and being able to talk about it and being able to educate other people and have discussions about these sort of things is really, really important. It's important from a young age in schools, um, in even elementary schools, in uh, high schools, in universities, in workplaces. It's something that I think is really important to talk about and really important to educate others about uh, modern anti-Semitism and classical anti-Semitism. So both the history of anti-Semitism and also why the Jewish community believes certain things are anti-Semitic today, what the history of that is. You know, I mentioned before that there were a few members of Congress who have used anti-Semitic tropes in recent years and um, the response was sort of doubling down on it and sort instead of using it as a learning opportunity. Uh, and I think that, you know, I can't speak for those individuals, but it could very well be that it was just coming from a place of ignorance. If you're not familiar, you don't know Jews, you don't know the Jewish community, you don't know Jewish history, you know, you wouldn't immediately think that something might be anti-Semitic. That's a problem. I think uh, we need to continue to work with other groups um, to understand what issues they're facing as, you know, other minority groups or even majority groups in, in some countries. Um, and uh, and also to educate them about what, what we're facing and, and why we view it as anti-Semitic. Very well said. Our whole thing about this podcast is educating people, and we are looking for more Sephardic and Mizrahi uh, people to interview because we know that in the West, we don't think a lot about the Jewish communities of Arab-speaking worlds. And one of our hopes in our podcast is to help people understand that everyone does not look the same and is an American or Israeli Jew. So thank you, especially for bringing that up. Evan has the last question before we're gonna ask you last thoughts. Um, Emily, are there organizations with whom you work when trying uh, to deal with anti-Semitism, uh, whether or online or offline? Are there certain organizations you you, you, you approach when you come across something? Sure, so honestly, I would say that the most effective thing if you can do it is the mainstream press. If you can ever get something about anti-Semitism uh, in the mainstream press yourself or through a contact or friend you have, that's the best case scenario because it, then it's not, and it's unfortunate that this is the case, but then it's not perceived by the non-Jewish community as being niche or you know sensitive or whatever people say. Um, so that's number one. 
Uh, a lot of people don't have that. And even myself with a lot of connections, it's not always successful or something they want to cover in the media. So of course, there are watchdog organizations that are absolutely critical in the work that they do both online and, you know, in person. Um, I would say that the uh, the Stop Antisemitism account is really good for social media. Um, they're very aggressive in like the way that they approach it. And I think that in some ways on social media, that's needed. <laughs> I think that there's not enough people who are willing to really expose how severe the anti-Semitism is online. Um, so that's an important step. And I know that they also work closely with the social media networks themselves to get content removed on social media platforms. Um, Fighting Online Anti-Semitism, FOA, is another organization. They're an Israeli NGO who works very hard uh, to remove anti-Semitic content on social media and also to issue annual, I think also quarterly, reports about the amount of anti-Semitism that we're seeing online from various countries and in various languages. So that's also really important. Um, and then also Simon Wiesenthal Center, they do tremendous work in combating anti-Semitism and exposing the anti-Semitism that we see today. Um, so I would say that I, while I don't work for or with any of them directly, those are all organizations that I'm regularly in contact with uh, when there are issues of anti-Semitism. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's hard because there's so many others, you know, so many other individuals and organizations doing important work on this issue, but uh, those are the three that come to mind. Thank you. So now it's your chance for your last thoughts. What have we not covered? Uh, there is one thing that you haven't really said. So do you spend all day monitoring the, the, the uh, social media channels or do people alert you to them? You might want to include so, it in your last thoughts. So I would say both. Uh, there's a lot of people, because I've sort of built up a following on this topic, there's a lot of people who will send me content um, or things that they've seen. Uh, but I also do regularly check certain groups, certain individuals who often affiliate or are affiliated with people who are known anti-Semites, uh, such as Louis Farrakhan and his uh, followers. A lot of them are very deeply anti-Semitic like him. Um, so we see a, a lot of uh, anti-Semitic content from them. And that's something that I watch pretty frequently um, I don't spend all day <laughs> tracking anti-Semitism. I probably spend too much time on social media, but not all day. Um, and then in terms of last thoughts, the only thing I wanted to mention is that um, I mentioned modern anti-Semitism and classical anti-Semitism. And one of my, my biggest issues and the things that I fought hardest for on social media is the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Association working definition of anti-Semitism. Um, and this is something that different countries, over 35 countries now, I think, have adopted as a definition of anti-Semitism. And basically what it does is it acknowledges that anti-Semitism today manifests in classical anti-Semitism. So blood libels and anti-Semitic tropes, you know, Jews having horns or Jews having big noses, these nasty uh, caricatures of what a Jew is that comes from hundreds of years ago and was resurfaced with the Nazis and unfortunately still exists in various formats today. There's also modern anti-Semitism, um, and this is manifested through anti-Zionism or in the name of anti-Zionism and illegitimate criticism of the state of Israel. So this looks like comparing uh, Israel to Nazis and uh, issuing, uh, holding Israel to a double standard compared to any other country, holding Jews outside of Israel accountable for the actions of Israel, even when they have nothing to do with it. 
Um, and then also using Zionism or Zionists as a sort of replacement word for Jews, which we see so frequently. And then they say, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Israel. I'm just anti-Zionist. No, actually, if you think that only the state of Israel doesn't have a right to exist, that is a form of modern anti-Semitism. And that's very different than saying I oppose the actions of the IDF in this operation or I oppose the Israeli government's approach on whatever. It's very different. All of that is legitimate political criticism. Saying that Israel doesn't have a right to exist is something else entirely. So there's and there's a lot of of lack of understanding about this issue today. And despite the fact that many countries have uh, acknowledged this definition and adopted it, we still see it as an uphill battle. And as I mentioned, one of my big issues has been the Adopt IRA campaign that we did on social media and in person with social media platforms to use this definition in their community standards. So to adopt it themselves and use it as a basis for examining whether content is anti-Semitic or not. Um, none of them have formally adopted it. There are some platforms who say that they use it as a basis, but not officially. Um, and I also wanna add one more thing about the definition that it isn't meant to censor anyone at all, actually. The definition doesn't say that content that's anti-Semitic should be removed. In fact, I'm pretty much in favor of most forms of, you know, anti-Semitism not necessarily being removed, but being flagged so that people can learn from it. If someone has something that uh, uses an anti-Semitic trope, don't just remove it, flag it, and then use it as an opportunity to educate people who are seeing it that like, hey, this is problematic and here's why. And I think that the more people we can educate that way, rather than censoring people, um, the better we can be. Now, obviously, there are some things that are just off limits completely. You can't incite violence against a specific group, but that doesn't mean you can't use some forms, yes, even of anti-Semitism to educate other people about what that is and why it's not acceptable. Very well said. Educate people what it is. They don't, having grown up as the only Jewish child in my public school, my whole public school education, when people don't know what a Jew is, they just don't even realize when they're saying anti-Semitic things. So it's incumbent upon all of us to educate people. So Emily, thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us. We really, really appreciate it. We thank our listeners. For those of you who have not seen Evelyn in her documentary, Never Again Is Now, please do so. You will learn a lot and be able to get, educate others. You can see it both on Amazon and YouTube. You can learn more about my free nonfiction Holocaust theater project at thinedgeofthewedge.com. And for everyone everywhere, as long as you don't put yourself in physical danger, please, when you can, speak up against anti-Semitism and hate.